You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. This is Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, we have specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. From the very beginning, we have been family-owned and family-run. Our tents have become the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers all over the world, and especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who demand utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, our tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. In alpine climbing, you often make compromises. Do you take rock shoes, or do you save weight and climb the rock pitches and boots? Carry a sleeping bag, or shiver with a friend? One place you don't have to compromise is your cams. Black Diamond C4 cams have been redesigned for 2019, and the new C4 is 10% lighter than before, but with the same burly construction and proven holding power. So don't leave your toothbrush behind. You can have clean teeth and still pack all the Black Diamond C4s you need. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. In this episode of The Cutting Edge, we're headed to the wild mountains of the Canadian Rockies. Our guests are Luca Lindich from Slovenia and Ines Paper from Germany. Together with American Brett Harrington, they climbed a very impressive new route up Mount Fay in early April. The north face of Fay has some classic 1960s and 70s ice lines. Around to the left is a much bigger and steeper wall, the east face. The first route up this 1,100-meter wall was climbed in 1984, 35 years ago. It is unrepeated. A second route was climbed in 2000, 19 years ago, also unrepeated. Neither of these routes climbed directly through the steep rock headwall at the top of the face. The latest ascent, by Luca, Ines, and Brett, continued directly up that headwall for the first complete ascent of Mount Fay's east face. It was also the first free ascent of the face. The sound of silence went at WI-5 and legitimate M8, an extraordinary grade for a remote alpine climb. Luca and Ines had other big goals in the Rockies, but a tragedy in mid-April prompted them to reconsider. In the last third of this interview, with the AHA's Chris Kalman, the pair discussed that high-profile accident and the paradoxical allure of the complex and dangerous Canadian Rockies. I hope you enjoy it. So let me, how do I pronounce your names? Is it Ines Paper and Luca Lindich? Yeah, mine was really correct. In in German, you would say Ines Papert, but it's, you know, our American does it, does <laughs> spell it this way, so they will understand. <laughs> okay. Let's just jump right in. Um, Luca, I know that you um, went to try this face in 2016 with Marc-Andre Leclerc. Uh, that was almost exactly three years ago uh, from the day that you guys successfully climbed it. What can you give me a little bit of background on that? You know what what drew you guys to that wall in the first place, and uh, what turned you back from it? Uh, in the first place, it was for sure the history of the wall, which was yeah, basically there was not much history. Uh, it, there was no 
now ascend through the whole wall uh, and the both of the roots that are on that wall kind of escaped either to the left or to the right of the head wall and even those two roots were known as being a really serious roots and never repeated so it was kind of especially because Mount Fay is uh, for the rocky standards not at all really far away from the road or, or town and to have such a wall with uh, such a history and potential I think that was our the main magnet for for me and Mark uh, to go and try the face so we approached to the face slept below and already in the night below the face we felt so warm in our sleeping bag it was like whoa this is quite on the limit for for an east face to go in the such a big ice mix line where where there is so much stuff hanging above you and in the morning it was totally clear you know it was already sliding um yeah so we just silently move away and uh, never came back uh you guys went on to do some pretty impressive routes in the valley of the 10 peaks that same season and then you know sadly mark andre passed away last year had you guys always been planning to come back and try mount Faye together was it something that was always in the back of your mind i dare to say it was uh, always at the back of our mind but never yeah, we never had a fixed plan of, okay, we will go then and then and, and try it again. But I'm sure it was at the back of our mind. Uh, and I think it was a logical already before we left to Canada this year. Um, we had some other ideas as well. But this one was one of them for sure where it was clear, okay, if it looks good, this is... Uh, we actually went before trying Mount Fay two times in the Valley of Ten Peaks to try some other lines. Uh, it didn't work out, but both of those two trips were really important to understand what what's going on in the mountains, how the conditions are developing, and and it for sure helped us a lot to be confident to go for it uh, full fully hundred percent on Mount Fay. Now. Um, I do want to just mention, so one of those routes that was put up in 1984 by Barry Blanchard, David Cheeseman, and Carl Tobin, right? Yeah. And the, I mean, those guys, uh, if you know much about the Canadian Rockies, you know, you know that those are three legends of the sport. So we're talking about a pretty serious climb here uh, for them to have, you know, tried to punch it through the center and eventually having to escape out onto the ridge earlier. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, compared to their conditions, we of course, we had the better weather forecast. We have the lighter gear. We had all those advantages you can have these days. And they just started climbing without knowing how long it would take them. So our idea was to not climb longer than two to three days and um they had also two to three days in mind, but ended up nearly five days being on the mountain. So it was a pretty intense climb for them, I guess. So you guys were feeling pretty good about your Canadian Rockies climbing skills. And seemingly kind of just out of the blue, uh, at least from what I read, it seemed 
pretty surprising. Like, um, Brett just happened to be in the right place at the right time, it seemed like. Um, yeah, it was kind of accidentally. We knew Brett would show up in Kenmore at some point, and we did talk about going climbing together um, ahead of the trip. So we didn't knew when she would show up, and um, all of a sudden she was there. <laughs> we were like, yeah, let's go climbing next day. The weather looks good. And she came up with Andromeda's train. And also Luca and I were totally keen and psyched to climb this with her. But then we checked again the weather forecast, and we saw, like, wow, this is just too promising for a one-day climb. And, yeah, she immediately agreed when we explained her the idea of climbing Mount Face, East Face. And yeah, also that it was Mark and Lucas' idea sure. was for sure part of um, her decision to, to join us. Pretty cool team of three. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. It was just a little bit funny at some points because Luca and I, we've been talking about gear and logistics and um, how to ascend how to approach how much time we would guess we would need and so we were quite a bit in rush when we were packing and we were sure we talked to brett about yeah, we would bring bb gear because a phase like that would in our opinion impossible doing it in a in a day without bb and the chances to fail because of you didn't bring bb gear was simply too high for us so that was totally obvious but apparently if we got to mention <laughs> and then when we walked in and uh, set up our uh, little abc she said oh well we're gonna do bb i didn't bring a bb gear and we were like yeah we, oh, no. we just need a sleeping bag and uh, uh sleeping mat so anything else we got so yeah it was a light and kind of fast alpine style um ascent or by that time still attempt um, yeah, and we didn't know how it would work together with Brett since we never climbed in the Alpine together. But we knew from Mark and from other people that her um, uh, yeah, her skills and also her motivation is really high. And so I think motivation is half of what you need. And yeah, yeah and we it worked out pretty well. Yeah, we had lots of fun. From what I read, it seemed like you guys just raced up the wall, uh, kind of to the point where Blanchard and Cheeseman and Tobin uh, went out, kind of escaped outright, and then the wall got really steep. Um, so how did that first day go? So the first day we started uh, in the night. We quite soon discovered the conditions are quite good from all the spin drifts. So the whole spin drifts they build a kind of a channel in the in the fall line or how to say on all the snowfields. So we were able to move really fast on these snowfields, and in between those snowfields you have I think three steeper ice steps pillars, uh, which we climbed again in the night, uh, except of the light the last one. I guess we were lucky with conditions and uh, we chose the right tactic and we were prepared to, to climb in this kind of difficulty even at night to move fast. And, and to move in the night in this terrain was part of the tactic because it's an east phase, which right. 
obviously gets an early morning sun right and it's clear that yeah there were cornices at the top uh, mushrooms already already in the face so we wanted to you can never totally avoid the the risk of something falling down that's clear but you can sure. minimize it as much as possible to make it reasonable to try out like this by moving in the cold temperatures in in this part of the face i think you more or less um climbed simultan like uh, running belays always had some like a couple uh protections in between us And at the steeper parts, we did the normal lead, like you would do by a normal belay. But um, yeah, I think the running belays were definitely helping a lot to move thing, things forward. It was not as easy that we, at least I would be into soloing. And then at the same time, you have all the gear, you, you bring the ropes. Why should you risk anything? Right. So yeah, at the end, it was... I think way easier than what we have seen on the pictures. They, the guys back in 1984 had ice was way better formed, way easier to climb. And I, I think that helped a lot to make us quick progress to get close to the headwall as possible before the day would daylight would hit the mountain. Um, at some point you guys settled in not that far from the summit, right? For, for a bivy well actually before that we needed to climb the really steep part of the route with ah, the roof okay so, so first that was the we tried to day. climb i got you that was the first day yeah. so just to the right of this roof there is a really obvious kind of a snow ice strip over maybe 30 meter blank black rock And this trip we were able to see already from, from the bottom of the face. And this was kind of clear. Ah, there is still easy climbing. That's where we will go. And so we tried to climb that uh, strip of ice, which ended up being totally useless, like detached from rock. And only the outer surface of it was ice and the inner surface was like sugar snow. So there was no no support on this that's why we were looking around where to to find the way through through this steep barrier and this crack over this roof was actually the only reasonable way where all everything else would end up i guess in some kind of difficult aiding with which for which we didn't even have the gear i think and uh, but this roof ended up It looked really, really hard and uh, also not sure if it will go or not. Uh, but it was kind of a nice surprise to, to find then the way that worked out and that worked out even to free climb it. Yeah, kind of, can you walk me through the free climbing on that? Because I've seen pictures of it and it looks like you're doing some sort of you know alpine mixed <laughs> cragging somewhere like you know doesn't look like the kind of thing that you'd be doing on a big mountain face yes it was a uh, for sure one of the i would say the most i don't even know what name to use but kind of a rare pitch that you get on the mountain 
uh, really, like you said, like uh, you would be at the crag. And already when I was, because on first try or first, how to say, when I first climbed it, I was uh, kind of aiding and halfway climbing and aiding, kind of mix of eight and three climbing my way up. And it was immediately clear, I know, wow, this would climb so good to, to free climb it, you know. And then I there were moments when I said, ah, no, forget it. You know, you are on a big mountain and Ines and Brett were down at the belay and it was cold. And, and then the next three meters again, I was like, oh, no, but I should maybe go down and try it. I could, I, kind I of... could feel those thoughts, uh, Luca, when you were thinking that, even though you were 30, 40 meters high up above us, I could see what you were thinking without knowing, you know, but I knew <laughs> you, you would love to go and try again. So that's why I yelled up and said, hey, Luca, you're going to come down again. And he was like silent for 30 seconds. And I knew again, now he's like processing. Should uh -huh. I, we would lose time. The girls are cold. Right. And then I told him, no, we're not cold. We are really okay. We were really fucking cold, but <laughs> I didn't tell. <laughs> and yeah, all of a sudden he said, okay, I, I will go again. And he didn't even take a rest. He just pulled the rope and uh, started climbing it again. It was impressive to watch. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. You probably don't get too many times on a big alpine face yeah. putting up the first ascent of the face where it's like oh i'm gonna repeat that pitch and see if i can free it <laughs> yeah, why knowing good. you still have so many more hard pitches above you <laughs> exactly exactly and uh, but you know it it was really interesting at this belay what went uh, through my head because you are it's kind of you know you are also getting tired it was towards the end of the day and you so see this huge head wall above you you know it is shit lots of work still to be done it's kind of easy to get kind of in the mood where you just want to quickly escape you know and it's not always easy to say no i'm here if i don't at least try i will probably regret this after uh, it was kind of uh, what to do now and yeah i'm i'm really glad i decided to and we knew we will never come back and climb the route again. Just no, that's, that's true, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and it would be the only eight part on the route. That's how how what I feel, felt like. Then I was like, no, the upper terrain it looked steep, but hmm, let's try this to to free this as well. Did you just fire it? Like, were there times when you thought you were gonna fall? Was it scary at any moment? Uh, no, there was. It was actually no, because, you know, I checked some moves for sure when I was aiding. I knew, okay, there I can hook there. So it was M8, it's kind of hard to on-site on an alpine wall. And for sure it was still committing and because it's not clipping bolts and you are on a big mountain. But it was, I I would say it was, I had it quite under control um, because it was not an on-site ascent anymore. So. But it was definitely, uh, to get over this roof, it was a really, really special feeling. So after you, you pulled through the roof and, you know, the, and Brett and Ines followed, um, what happened there between then and when you guys made a bivy? Did you just bivy right there? No, I think we climbed a few more pitches, two or three. And then Luca said, let's go for a bivy. And I was kind of, 
concerned if we shouldn't keep going and maybe find a better ledge because it was quite steep at that point. But uh, yeah, next day we figured out it was a smart idea to stay and to grab this option because it got just steeper the higher we went. So yeah, we shoveled with our hands and um, ice tools a little ledge where we could sleep, where we could um, fit our um, foamies and sleeping bags. And yeah, then it was dark all of a sudden. <laughs> it was not a lot of space where you could move around, but it was still a flat spot, which is really, really important for your recovery. And so how the next day go? I mean, at this point, you guys, did you kind of know you had it in the bag? Was there any uncertainty? Oh, no, it was not, not it was not over sure. until we pulled over the the edge of the the wall gotcha but we thought it would be it would be closer to the, to the summit from there we were guessing like let's say three four pitches but it ended up being i don't i don't even remember was it six or eight and every which we were like, ah, one more. And then, oh, no, one more. <laughs> and, of course, we had to do some traverses to follow the most, the easiest um, line. So, yeah, that way you also lose time. But the second day was quite interesting. Yeah, a lot of, lot of good climbing, really good rock and uh, okay gear. But building up the anchors was always kind of an issue because we were really limited with our protect with our gear. Since we thought the less we bring, the less we bring, the faster we are. But one set of camelots up to was it number three, Luca? I was think so. Yeah, barely enough, you know. Um, Jeez, one set of few, camelots. <laughs> yeah, we had a few, um, a few nuts. We had a bunch of ice crews for the lower part, which we couldn't use at all high up. And we had quite some pitons, and the anchors were nearly all made by pitons. So it was hard to find the right like gear for the anchors. And what kind of rock was it up there? Uh, I think it, it was, was quartzit. It's just that there were parts where it was quite loose, I would say. Not... Luckily, not uh, all the time, but there were parts in more or less every pitch on the head wall where you needed to take really care to to not fall off with the hook. Yeah, some meters it was more pushing and stemming instead of pulling because you would just be scared you would break the mountain away. And uh, yeah, also the the guys who were below you, they were so exposed. So I got a, a rock on my helmet. My helmet broke. So maybe this, this tells wow. a little bit about the rock quality. Luca, you said that it definitely wasn't over until you pulled over the final lip. Um, what was that last pitch like? Was that also pretty hard? It looked quite easy from the belay below. Like more of a, oh, it will be some deep snow at the beginning and then uh, maybe five meters steeper step, uh, which actually looked, I will need to climb a chimney and then in through the hole in a cornice to bear, because there was a, there were cornices all over on the ridge. But then it ended up being like just when I was below the cornice, 
so I could already touch it in, and it was quite a steep terrain. I would say slightly overhanging. I noticed, uh, I think two or, or how many really perfect pockets outright on a steep wall into a crack system. And it was just this really, again, this crazy dry tooling moves like at the crack, fly, flying the, the, flying the feet to the right and, and then climbing the crack system out. Uh, so we didn't even need to deal with the cornice. Oh man. Uh, and, and that was it. It was a perfect finish for such a route. Yeah, it was a really fun pitch, the last one, I agree. <laughs> but still knowing once we are on the summit, we are still not there, you know. It was nearly dark and uh, we got into a storm by the time we were climbing the last few pitches of the headwall. And we took a summit selfie, which was, yeah, kind of, it doesn't look really great because it was wet and moist and nearly dark. But yeah, I'm glad we did that. And then we just walked down the other side or down climbed the other side. And was that pretty uneventful? Did you just find the hut pretty easily? I would say pretty easily because we had a GPS and luckily we had it. I would... <laughs> Really recommend everyone going out there in the Rockies for a adventure on the big mountain. Bring a communication device and a GPS or both in one device uh, like we had. Because without this, we would never be able to find the hut. And we would run in a quite an epic with this storm being outside on the gl glacier. So it it was definitely a smart idea to bring it. It, you know, it kind of felt super long because you see this one kilometer and a half on your GPS, the air distance. But when it's dark and stormy, it kind of feels, wow, I am already walking for five kilometers for sure. Where is this hut now? So it was more because we were tired and hungry, thirsty, felt long. And it's still kind of this feeling did I put in the right coordinates? Then all of a sudden you are sure. maybe, hopefully I, I didn't mess up because none of us ever visited this hut before. So you are kind of, kind of blindly following your small device and trusting that, that but you are going. If you knew right. where the hut was in those conditions, you wouldn't find it. No chance. Wow. And we oh, were yeah, so glad when we got there, like, oh, wow, this is not, hopefully the door can, is open, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> and it was so good to know we can just go in and we are sheltered and we can sleep and uh, melt some snow. By that time, we didn't have any food left, but it didn't matter. We were just happy to be there and to have some water and, yeah, shelter. Luca, Ines, and Brett climb Mount Fay on April 2nd and 3rd. Two weeks later, after climbing a route on the super steep east face of Howes Peak in the Rockies, Hans-Jörg Auer, David Lama, and Jess Russ Kelly were killed in an apparent avalanche. The news rocked the climbing world, and naturally it shook Ines and Luca as well. One year earlier, Ines and Luca had their own avalanche scare while acclimatizing for Shishapangma in Tibet. During the night, they heard a roar and leapt out of their tent, only to see it buried by a massive avalanche. They were lucky to recover enough gear to make it down from the mountain. In this final section of the interview, 
Enos and Luca reflect on these experiences and on risk and decision-making in dangerous mountains. Chris picks up the story. I don't think that it would be complete to finish this interview without talking a little bit about the reason why we delayed it. Um, as you guys both re- recall, you know, we were going to yeah. talk earlier and then on April 16th, Jess Ross Kelly, David Lama and Hans Jörg Auer were killed on house peak, um, mm-hmm. nearby, which was a, an event that shook the entire international climbing community. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that we didn't talk right away because I know you guys needed time to collect your thoughts and I did too. Um, and I still don't feel like I have closure on that and like I understand it. You know, I, in preparation for this interview with you guys, I was sort of looking at, looking at their climb and then looking at your climb and it's interesting. Um, Steve House wrote on social media about the uh, that route that he and Barry Blanchard and Scott Bax had done in 1999, that route M16. He wrote, That climb took myself, Scott Bax, and Barry Blanchard to the limits of skill, power, judgment, and yes, luck. So I sort of thought about that. It was interesting. You know, you guys were kind of going up an old Blanchard route. Um, those guys were going up an old Blanchard route between the six of you. I mean, those are six of the top alpinists in the whole world, I would say at this time. Um, and within two weeks, both in the Canadian Rockies, both on walls previously climbed by some of the great alpinists of the past generation, one team, team of alpinists gets unlucky and the other doesn't get unlucky. And, you know, when I look at that, sometimes it just feels to me like this game of roulette. And of course, I'm not the first person that's ever made that comparison. What I want to hear from you guys is sort of like, how do you make sense of that? And how do you keep motivated and, and continue climbing when, you know, you have someone like Steve House saying, yep, it was luck. There was luck. You know, when, you, when you're when you going to attempt a big mountain face, you have in mind that there is some risk. Okay, you have to, you know, to find out the obvious risk. So that's at least the way how, we, how I'm dealing with it. I, I always want to see the face before the the day before I go climbing in daylight, you know, to get a feeling for conditions to see what the risk or risks are. And, uh, but still there is some risk you can't really see. Like it's there that there is no question. I don't know. It's... We, it took us quite some time to find the motivation again. It still takes some time. And I don't know if you know, we just came back from Canada two days ago and we had another four weeks in the Rockies without doing any big alpine climbing. We went sport climbing day after day. We climbed on Yamnaska uh-huh. and uh, we didn't feel the mindset to 
attempt another great, amazing phase. But the conditions were also anything else than promising. So this is something you always should keep in mind when you enter a place like which is new for you. I had Luca with me. We had all those amazing friends in town who were helping us with a lot with um, their knowledge about conditions. Uh, we've been talking to them a lot, and I'm really grateful we had this opportunity. And I don't know if Hans Jörg, David, and Jess, if they had this opportunity talking to local people, if they spent enough time in the area, if they got really a feeling for the place. We went in three times to Mount Fay until we climbed it, and um, mm. it felt just right, you know? It just felt like not a single time I was regretting to walk in for a full day sure. pulling the sledges behind and yeah at the end you can't blame anyone for something happened like this it's totally shocking and sad and and it makes you think about yourself of course yeah for sure that's clear it's uh, because we are kind of doing more or less often the same things and some of us we get home and some not um Definitely, it's impossible, in my opinion, impossible to say if it was when you were lucky or when you were unlucky. And uh, But I think that, you know, it's important for everyone to understand that even the best climbers in the world, they do mistakes. Mm -hmm. And... I will risk now a little bit that there will be some arguments or whatever to what I will say now, but I think those three guys really did a mistake this time by going. And saying this, I'm totally aware that I did mistakes on in my climbing career, career many times already, and I got lucky and, and got back. But I honestly think they did a mistake this time. Even though, you know, they were really one of the best climbers ever, but also those, they can do a mistake and it's human. We are all human beings. Uh, we decide for whatever reason to go for something, to try something. Um, but we need to be fair that that it's not the mountain who was unfair or whatever. It's they are, Their stuff is moving on the mountains all the time in winter. And in this period it was clear it was quite quite uh, dangerous and, and it's not judging or 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 now you know saying someone did stupid thing because as said i did mistakes already and got lucky and got away more or less one year ago on expedition to shisha pangma um but then Exactly because of this, you start asking yourself uh, how much has luck to do with it or whatever. I don't know how to call this even. And of course, it makes you think, what am I doing? How? What is? Yeah, what's the point in in all this? And my answer to all this is more and more that I actually see myself doing less and less, but going more in the quality. Yeah, I don't know, maybe a funny comparison, but it's like, uh, I don't know, good wine, you know, 
you can enjoy a glass, but you can also get uh, alcoholic if you do it too much. And I think alpinism, statistically looking, if you are spending every day in a complex terrain, you will probably die because just out of statistic, you are exposed too often. And what I could recommend to people, yeah, is also just use all the options you have to check the conditions, the avalanche forecast is there. Um, learn about the place, um, spend as much time in the mountain range where you are and try to get a feeling for it. It's nothing you can just read about it. You have to feel it and you have to be there. Otherwise, you will not really get an idea. Yeah, but the Rockies, they are different. And it has to do a lot with the cold, really cold periods when the snow gets an interesting layers and snowpack. I've never seen something terrible like that before. <laughs> in, neither in the Alps or in the Himalayas. It's Canada is just different. And apparently it was a really bad year for that since the month of February was crazy cold. Like even in Kenmore, they had 30 minus. So that didn't help a lot to build up for really good conditions in the Alpine. That's, I don't know if that leaves me with more, more answers or more questions, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a hard one. So yeah. we are all fighting with this. I I really appreciate your guys' insight. And, you know, it's clear that you both think about this a lot. I think that's one thing that strikes me as clear about everyone that I've talked to who's taken, who's kind of made this sort of life. You know, it was the same thing that I thought about Marc-Andre was, yeah. well, I don't know how long he's going to be around for because he's doing very, very hard climbing and in high risk terrain, but I had no doubt that he had thought about it. And it felt to me like he kind of knew the risks he was taking and he was okay with them. Um, exactly. And it, it seems to me like the same sounds like the same is true with you guys. And from what the families of the three alpinists that were killed recently say, it seems like they were all in the same boat as well. I guess it's just a particular type of human that, you know, decides that the risks are worth the rewards. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Up to, I mean, it's hard to say how, I think it's a really personal thing, how, what you see as a risk that is not worth it anymore. And yeah, I, I guess where, where the, where the line is everyone somehow finds the line and probably in some period in your life this line is at one place and maybe in 10 years it's a totally different place and 10 years after even way different place so i think we are all all dealing all the time yeah i find that i think you're absolutely right the line moves and shifts as you grow older and that's something that that I don't know what to think about because my risk assessment now, or my, not my risk assessment, but my cost benefit analysis, like the risks versus the rewards now versus 10 years ago for me have changed so much. That line has shifted so far away from 
kind of the value of individual sublime moments towards the value of longevity. And it seems crazy to me that uh, my younger self could have gotten unlucky based upon how that person felt and totally precluded the existence of this self that I am now, which is a self that doesn't agree with my younger self. So how are you supposed to, I mean, it seems like it would be a dishonest way to live to not to like say, well, in 10 years, I'll feel this way. So I should live that way right now. (laughs) I mean, I think you have to live in. I think this is a totally natural development in anyone's life. Because when you were young, Chris, you didn't have the experience and you simply didn't see the risk. And now since you're 10 years older, you collected 10 more years of alpine climbing and you realize where the risk is that, I think this is what makes you more scared, which is totally natural and totally human. So this is the way how it should be. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But anyways, I, I still, I'm still in love with the Rocky Mountains and as serious as they are, I didn't know they were so serious, but now I know um, as amazing they are like this, mm huge like terrain of endless mountains like Luca has been reading the guidebook like the entire trip even though we didn't go alpine climbing later in the trip and it's just so like um, yeah exciting and I'm sure we will be back at some point with a bunch of more ideas but what I learned is to have a plan but even better to have a plan B, C, D, and so on, you know, right. because you have to decide your trip, your approach, your attempt by the conditions. And after we attempted on Tuso and on Neptuak without getting up at all, we saw that the north faces are still not in conditions. It was simply too early. So we had to move to a phase which would get hit by the sun at some point of the day. At the same time, and the sun would make it scary when it hits the face. So that's why we realized if we climb by the east face, we're going to have to be really fast or climb better, climb with most of the parts during the night. And, yeah, so it's so complex. Alpine climbing and especially alpine climbing in the Rockies is more complex than anything else I've ever been doing. If you haven't seen it, the photo of Luca leading the M8 roof on Mount Faze's face is posted at the Cutting Edge website. It's unlike any photo you've probably ever seen from a major alpine climb. You'll also find a link to Enos's 2017 article in the AHA about her first big route with Luca, a dreamline of ice on Kizil Asker near the China-Kyrgyzstan border, which the two did in 2016. It was Enos's third expedition to that mountain. Thanks to both climbers for sharing their stories with Chris and with us. And thanks to Hilleberg the Tentmaker for continuing to make the cutting edge possible. For bombproof shelter in the world's harshest environments, there's no better choice than Hilleberg. See all their tents at hilleberg.com. Thanks also to Black Diamond Equipment for supporting this episode. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the AHA, wishing you happy climbs. Mm-hmm.